Good morning. It is wonderful to see everyone, to welcome back those who have been traveling or having babies. You are indeed a lovely sight, and it is good, so very good, to be together again. As it is here each Sunday, there are people here who are in their fifth decade, and there are people who have walked through our doors this morning for the very first time. We arrive from different neighborhoods, towns, from different emotional places, from wildly different circumstances. Our beautiful children and youth who have just gone back to school are here, our newest babies, our parents who have just bid well to their college students. We have come to this place that will always hold a welcome mat, whether we saw you just yesterday or 20 years ago. There are people grieving here, some mourning recent losses, the loss in our own community of Richard Peabody and Joel Silverman, others who come bearing a permanent mark of sorrow or some other loss in their life, there are some with serious illness or mental illness, some among us who have fallen in love for the first time, some with new jobs, and some who are desperate to be employed again. Some who have lost their house, their health care, some who have just lost their bearings. One of us has learned to paint. One of us wrote a letter, the hardest thing she's ever done. We come with our needs, our longings, our fears, our prejudices. We come with our vulnerabilities, our passions, our unique gifts like the bits of amber, amethyst, and sea green jewels in our story. We come with it all. We come home to this place again, but wherever we come from, we enter here now with renewed compassion, renewed gentleness, renewed generosity of spirit, renewed hope. It is good to be together again. Welcome home. As we begin our program year today, I remember why ethical culture came into existence. Its founder, Dr. Felix Adler, wanted to offer a congregational home where there could, they could celebrate the gift of being alive, renew their commitment to living ethically, and to heal a broken world by doing what is right and what is good for the sake of humankind and thereby for themselves, for ourselves. And what challenging work that is for us, especially so on this day of national mourning as we remember the violence and devastation of September 11th, 10 years ago, whose effects, of course, have been long-reaching, morally confusing, militarily devastating, and have raised some of the most difficult questions about religion's role in the world. Ten years ago, 19 
fundamentalist Islamist extremists engaged in a horrific act of terror, hoping that they would divide the country and the world and maybe even spark a religious war. Instead, the American people came together in ways that no one had ever seen them before. A grieving nation witnessed the spontaneous splendor and goodness of ordinary citizens and images of Americans so commonly televised around the world. Images of decadence, materialism, arrogance, and greed were replaced by pictures of us as we like to see ourselves, a kind-hearted and generous-spirited people. Forrest Church, the minister at the time of All Souls Unitarian Church in New York City, described it this way. He said, It was as if the gray ashes that came down and covered people created a patina that eclipsed all other differences and reminded us all of our common humanity. Instead of dividing the world, it united it. Former enemies became allies as we realized the only way to fight terror was to forego what separates us and join in the common bond to preserve our safety and freedom. We were grateful for the images the media presented of human heroism and love, touching stories that recalled us to human goodness, but as we know, these images did not inform the course our country took in responding to the terrorist attack, and the political rhetoric that followed invoked neither kindness nor human solidarity. Instead, we heard the language of war and vengeance and retaliation. There are two kinds of patriotism, Thomas Kirchhoff says. One is a patriotism that is embodied by the statement, my country, right or wrong, and that marks the other as the enemy. That says that if we inflict humiliation, pain, and death on those who have harmed us, our trauma will be transformed and life will get better. And the other patriotism, however, is one that says, this is my home, the country where my heart is. Here are my hopes, my dreams, my holy shrine, a patriotism that is not exclusive in its affirmation, one that would call us to move forward inch by painful inch out of the chaos of suspicion, fear, <coughs> and violence toward the community of kinship and the highest hopes of the human spirit. Now, obviously, violence committed in the name of religion is nothing new. The fact is that none of us can really know what we ought to have done back then or even what we ought to do now. Clearly, if the solution to all of this violence and the healing of our world was easy to bring about, we would have done it by now. Would hope. What is within our reach, though, is that in our small little corner of the world, right here on 16th Street, we daily have the opportunity to demonstrate what an institution looks like when it is run according to the values of democracy and freedom and diversity and compassion and all those great ideals. 
Much has been written about the changing face of America these past 10 years, the meteoric wave of immigrants from all over the world to America, the largest wave since the huge influx of Eastern Europeans between 1881 and 1926, has brought with it multiculturalism. Different cultures now live side by side, something that has helped foster pride in one's identity and has helped to a degree to overcome negative and bigoted stereotypes of people from ethnic and religious groups other than our own making those others seem less alien, less threatening, something that challenges the predominant narrative that seems to persist here in America since 9-11, that there is an escalating conflict between the West and the rest of the world that can only end in an apocalyptic catastrophe. But there is a vast segment of the population that doesn't accept this narrative as true. They simply see it as being politicized with policies that have been disastrous. Liberal religionists, we among them, would say that what we also see is the religions of the world accommodating themselves, accommodating themselves to each other more and more, recognizing in each other the same universal human religious impulses. We are not engaged in a final battle for God. We see a future of peace, cooperation, and diversity. Interfaith coalitions are coming up everywhere and are becoming stronger and more newsworthy. And we, of course, have just joined one, the Interfaith, Washington Interfaith Network. But ethical culture leader Joe Schumann warns that this multiculturalism brings with it challenges because it, increasingly, it is increasingly common for a people to identify themselves now by their ethnicity or religion. And with this type of self-identity, if it becomes dominant or exclusive, frames how a person sees others, that is in mutually exclusive terms. The me and the other, he said, can be the engine of much xenophobia, hatred and bloodletting. He says, People need to build their identities around concretes, which are going to be specific, indeed culturally or ethnically specific, around specific language and our customs and the foods we like to eat, our stories and our style of humor. It is simply not possible for people to build a sense of their inner identity around the abstract concept of universal humanity or people in general. He goes on to say that the closer reality is the fact that identity is not monolithic. It's not exclusively this or that. Any single identity is highly complex and multiple. Our goal, he says, is not to bring about a post-ethnic universal utopia, as if that were possible, but to liberalize the social atmosphere so that this condition of mutual group recognition and respect can be realized. There is no monolithic, monolithic Muslim or Jew or Latino or Bosnian or American and within any of those identities, they are obviously incredibly and often acrimoniously diverse with hundreds of hair splitting 
options. And see, seeing the boundaries of ethnicity and religion are not impregnable walls as we see them, can be a true foundation of mutual cooperation and peace. And he concludes, I think ethical culture has gotten it right. Its philosophy has kept alive the ideal that people need to move outside the boundaries of ethnicity and religion to appreciate and embrace the universal humanity that resides in all people. The richest life, ethical culture proclaims, is lived in the zone between the universal and the particular. By keeping that ideal alive, we work, we work down the walls that divide us. And in doing so, we can be a voice for peace at a time in a world that sorely needs it. In other words, we are not part of the liberal religionists who ignore individual differences that seek a universalism that would make genuine differences between individuals and cultures unessential. Adler's unique contribution was a universalism that could only be achieved through the active engagement of individual differences. Dr. Ibu Patel, do any of you know of him? Any of you read him? He's a young American Muslim from India with a doctorate in religion from Oxford. He is the founder of Interfaith Youth Corps. And he writes in his book, Acts of Faith, the story of an American Muslim, the struggle for the soul of a generation. He writes this. My childhood was a series of rejections of the various dimensions of my heritage in the belief that America, India, and Islam could never coexist within the same person. If I wanted to be one, I could not be any of the others. My struggle is the story of young people standing at the crossroads of inheritance and discovery, trying to look both ways all at once. There's a strong connection, he says, between finding a sense of inner coherence and developing a commitment to pluralism. The inner sense comes first. A hundred years ago, he writes, the great African-American scholar W.E.B. Du Bois famously said, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. I believe the 21st century will be shaped by the question of the faith line. On one side are the religious totalitarians committed to one way of being, believing and belonging on this earth, and everyone else needs to be cowed, converted, condemned, or killed. On the other side of the line are the religious pluralists who believe we need everybody. The hymn singers, sun saluters, Quran reciters, mandala makers, the speakers of Hebrew, the readers of Sanskrit, the hip hop heads and the folk music fans, we need spaces where we can each state that we are proud of where we come from and all point to the place where we're going. He said, I fear the road will be very long and dangerous and I rejoice that we're traveling it together. In his book, The Struggle for the Soul of a Generation, Patel shares this story. In high school, the group I ate lunch with included a Cuban Jew, 
a Nigerian evangelical, and an Indian Hindu. We were all devout to a degree, but we almost never talked about our religions with one another. Often, somebody would announce at the table that he couldn't eat a certain kind of food or any food at all for a period of time. We all knew that religion hovered behind this, but nobody ever offered any explanation deeper than my mom said, and nobody ever asked once. This silent pact relieved all of us. We were not equipped with a language that allowed us to explain our faith to others or to ask anyone else about anyone else's. Back then, I thought a little about the dangers lurking within this absence. A few years after we graduated, my Jewish friend reminded me of a dark time during our adolescence. There were a group of kids in our high school who, for several weeks, took up scrawling anti-Semitic slurs on classroom desks and making obscene statements about Jews in the hallways. I did not confront them. I did not comfort my Jewish friend. I knew little about what Judaism meant to him, less about the emotional effects of anti-Semitism, and next to nothing about how to stop religious bigotry. So I averted my eyes and avoided my friend because I couldn't stand to face him. A few years later, he described to me the fear he had experienced coming to school those days and his utter loneliness as he had watched his close friends simply stand by. Hearing him recount his suffering and my complicity is the single most humiliating experience of my life. I did not know it in high school, but my silence was betrayal. Betrayal of Islam, which calls upon Muslims to be courageous and compassionate in the face of injustice. Betrayal of America, a nation that relies on its citizens to hold up the bridges of pluralism when others try to destroy them. Betrayal of India, a country that has too often seen blood flow in its cities and villages when extremists target minorities and others fail to protect them. My friend needed more than my silent presence at the lunch table. Pluralism is no default position. It is not autopilot, he said. Pluralism is an intentional commitment imprinted through action only. It requires deliberate engagement with difference, outspoken loyalty to others, and proactive protection in the breach. You have to choose to step over the faith line. It is easy to see the death of pluralism in the fire of a suicide bombing, but the ice of silence will kill it just as well. And it is the ice of silence that is what we have to watch out for here. As a way to honor our desire for pluralism, I'd like us to actively engage in studying what it means together this year. Not the kind as Victoria Safford describes it as, y'all come, come on down, summons to the lowest common denominator, the common denominator of feel-good faithiness. 
but rather one marked by a rigorous quest for the common good. One where we look ourselves in the face and say, what belief, what worldview might we not embrace and why not? What is it that we do say to Islamic fundamentalists, to Christian fundamentalism, to religious practices that degrade women or children or whole classes of people or atheist fundamentalists? It asks that we know where we stand, what we believe, what we care about, and live for, and live by. We need to know our own heart and history and beliefs before we begin to casually tolerate or disparage others. And this is the step that liberal religionists often skip and neglect at our peril. Because, says Safford, you cannot know how much another cherishes their faith, their story, the name by which they call their God, the name by which they call themselves, until you have claimed your own name, your own place and perspective, your own people, your own and loved it fiercely. Each community will appreciate the humanity of the other and respect them to flourish in their own ways as long as they don't violate the rights of others. That's what we dream of. Dialogue and cooperation are vitally important values. And really, there is no alternative if humanity is going to survive. Before 9-11, though Muslims occupied one-sixth of the planet, we knew virtually nothing about them, and for the most part, still don't. We're similarly naive about Judaism and the many sides of Christianity, for that matter. But we as ethical culturists, desiring as we do to build a truly pluralistic, multicultural world, must try to learn things about them that are not part of some lofty theological framework but rather are as common as dirt. Like what others are praying for. What do they sing to their babies at night? When do they light candles and where and why? At what times are they fasting? What are they longing for? In how many ways do they take off their shoes because the very ground to them is holy? What are the things they love and cherish that we don't even know about? And if we don't know about these things and can't answer these questions, does it not begin to feel evil to participate in their destruction? Naomi Shihab Nye wrote a poem, the American Palestinian poet wrote the poem, Red Brocade. The Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's come from, where he's headed. That way, he'll have strength enough to answer. Or, by then you'll be such good friends you don't care. Let's go back to that. Rice, pine nuts. Here, take the red brocade pillow. 
My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone puts on to pretend they have a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. Listen to those words. I refuse to be claimed. Refuse to be claimed by fear, to only be claimed by love, generosity, and caring. Everything else is failure. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. Your plate is awaiting. In those first days after 9-11, there was weeping all over the world. We were suddenly there together in our mortality, afraid for our country, for ourselves, afraid for everyone we love, and aware that this life is so precious and fleeting. Somehow, we remembered that we are connected to each other. No one honked at one another to get out of the way. Imagine that. <laughs> People stopped to help when they could. Something deep inside us compelled us to remember on some level that the typist at the Pentagon, the busboy at the restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, the old men laughing and sipping tea from small, fragile cups in the streets of Kabul. People falling in love here and there, young girls giggling, telling secrets, the shepherd in the hills of Afghanistan. Every single one is our brother and sister, our kin, our responsibility. There is no suffering, no bigotry that doesn't matter. No life that doesn't count. This is a house of hope. A shelter for us when we're grieving or lonely, weary or worn. It restores us with music and laughter, shared meals and shared work. This house holds memories aspirations, and all the shining principles and values, the ethics we cherish and will hand on to our children. It is here where we choose to treat others as having worth and dignity, not on the basis of how they act, but because this is the kind of world in which we live, we wish to live. Thank you.